came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views, are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Thursday the 7th of March. 2019. Each fortnight, we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science, or particle physics. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Christine Redman, who is a senior lecturer in science and education at the University of Melbourne, and we'll be discussing the impact of science education on Australia's ability to develop a strong space industry. And that's followed by Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave, who is a university toxicology and pharmacology lecturer, an amateur astronomer and astrophotographer, and he's going to tell us what's up, Doc. What's up in the night, morning and evening skies for the next two weeks? And he takes us on an astronomical tangent. And we'll finish up as usual with our Astrophys News highlights from this golden age of astronomy. Space Science and Astrophysics. So let's cross to Melbourne right now to speak with Christine. Hello, Christine. Hello, Brendan. How are you? Very well, thanks. Today we're speaking with Dr. Christine Redmond who is an Honorary Fellow in Science and Education at the Melbourne Graduate School for Education at the University of Melbourne. She's going to give us the big picture of the state of science education in the primary, that's elementary, secondary and tertiary sectors in Australia and how that will influence Australia's ambition to nurture its newly formed Australian Space Agency. Very exciting times for Australia, very exciting times for space science and science education, I think, Brendan. Excellent. So before we talk about space and how strong science education is needed to support a viable space agency, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Christine, and tell us how you became interested in science and information technology and education in the first place? Thank you, Brendan. I came here as a migrant and I think my earliest memories of doing anything with science were probably in my home country with my dad because he very much loved fishing and gardening, so I was in the dirt. And when we came to Australia, I remember a few occasions in the primary science curriculum that we had opportunities to do little experiments. But when I got to secondary school, I loved my science teacher 
and I love knowing why things in the world were happening. So from there, I went into teacher training and we didn't have a science course as such. After my dip ed, three years full time, I did the B ed and I undertook the only option in that for science, which was environmental science and loved that. So then when I went to do my master's, which I chose to do by research, what I'd realised was in the primary school, young children were either hesitant about maths or hesitant about reading, and it was hard to get them to even come to the bar, even to put their foot forward to approach material. But if you took everyday materials and provided a science experience for them, those children wanted to read, needed to know the math, and they just got on with it. So I found science captured the heart and then the learning head followed. So I'd remodeled my curriculum so that science was experienced in the morning and then we could link through to our reading and our writing later on in the day. So I thought everyone must realise this. So I was asking teachers <laughs> about science and discovered that no, science was uh, oft avoided, if possible, under-resourced. The teachers felt obligated, as professional teachers do, to either have the right answer um, or to even have an answer. And it wasn't as easy in the 80s and the early 90s to find the answer at your fingertip. So... For lots of reasons, science was avoided by teachers. And then it was then I realised science was really existing like a ghost curriculum. Yep. Now, you've been on the academic staff at Melbourne University for over 20 years and you're supervising masters and PhD students who are studying teachers and science and technology and information technology. Let's talk about the quantity, the quality, and the content that these teachers deliver. First of all, the quantity. Are we producing enough science-qualified graduates to service our primary or elementary schools and our secondary schools? Or do we have teachers in classrooms lacking confidence or training in science? In the secondary system, we tend to historically have a large number of biology teachers. Yep. What we don't have a lot of is the, and need more of, is the chemistry educators and the physics educators. Yep. And the reasons we don't have physics educators is we don't have enough people with the maths to go with the physics. Yep. In the primary system, the primary teacher comes to us as the generalist teacher, strong in the arts rather than the sciences and the math. Yep. So we don't have enough people who come into primary education with strong science and math backgrounds. Yep. So when you start thinking about all that the primary teacher has to engage with, child development, psychology, all of those things, then how much science can they get in a two-year course? Yeah. And that may be down to a 36-hour course. So our program is as much about teaching how to teach science as well as saying very much it's okay not to know, but it's not okay not to find out. 
We can't teach them everything in a 36-hour program. But recently, Brendan, you'd be interested to know we've been teaching self-selecting students to be science specialists and math specialists. Yep. How the system will use those is very much up to the principal's discretion and the purpose in the school. They may opt to put them in a classroom with a team of teachers to support a team to teach science better, or they may make them the specialist in the school and all students will move through classes with the science specialist. So that is a way we're trying to address the shortage of primary science teachers who don't have the strong background. That's great. It sounds like there's some movement happening there. So that's the quantity of our Mm -hmm. science teaching. What about the quality? It seems that the study scores to enter a university to commence a, a teaching degree are quite low. What's going on here, Christine? Well, we've had that as a distinct problem in recent years. I think it's been remedied, it's been attended to. I can speak, obviously, more for Melbourne University and the Melbourne Graduate School of Education. Ours are all postgraduate, so they will have done well to get into a degree, completed a degree. So in our case, they come with very high scores, That's excellent. So it's not all doom and gloom. Okay, let's get on to the content now. What can you tell us about the primary and secondary science curricula in Australia? Is space science specifically included? Should it be? And what changes would you like to see happen in our science curricula? Well, thank you for that question. I love it because I'm always surprised to see that We have, I think, a very minimal amount of base science in the primary curriculum in particular. I would like to see many more conversations about space science right through the primary school because it is one of the top popular non-fiction subjects that students love. But I don't think we're hijacking enough this amazing fascination that humans have with the world beyond our earth. These are all to be hijacked into the curriculum because they are our everyday topics now. Exactly. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'd love to see more catapult making and rocket making happening in primary schools. Kids just love making things. So now might be a good time to talk about the Victorian Space Science Education Centre based at a secondary school in Melbourne that produces hands-on programs for primary, elementary and secondary students, as well as training programs for teachers. Now, we both know it's a highly successful model of STEM in space education, I've donned a spacesuit there myself in a past life and explored the surface of Mars and no potatoes grown there, Christine, but great fun. Can you tell us then what does go on at the Victorian Space Science Education Centre? I have quite a bit of involvement with them. I've sent many of my pre-service teachers have had classes there. What data is showing is that the types of teaching that's occurring there is having an impact on students' ability to learn and learn in the most effective ways. Not only do I send pre-service teachers there to see the program offering because it's very, very rich. It's everything from 
going on the Mars surface as you did. So not only do they have that experience, they also have, like, if you imagine yourself, you're at NASA and you have a command center. They have a very much a real-world NASA space center and they have a place where a group of the students will be in what you would say is uh, in it like an international space station. They're doing experiments and they're sending back their data. They're doing all types of things in the international space station, mini version thereof, uh, and still on planet Earth. And they're sending back that data and then all of a sudden something goes wrong and then there's a scenario and they have to make sure that those people are safe. So not only are they doing dealing with the constraints of excellent communication, but they're having to think about what's required for sustaining life and rescuing these people. So they have all sorts of scenarios. They have programming experiences for droids, um, for little robots. And I think uh, another excellent program which is in the pipeline now is for Year 10 students to work uh, together to build CUBE satellites which will be launched and will gather data and that data will be streamed back to many schools so that they can be working with the real-time data sets coming from those CubeSats. So that's some of the stuff that they do. But I guess the point I really would like to make about their work and its relationship to STEM is their work is pedagogically sound. It's evidence-based. It's based on what we know is currently best practice about uh, about learning. And so they also run a lot of professional learning programs, of good extension programs. They're not like a two-hour flash in the pan. They're, um, they're sustained programs for teachers and they are extremely popular. I mean, we're thinking like, I don't know, it sounds ridiculous, but I think it's like 20,000 students a year go through that place. And then I can't remember how many hundreds of teachers. Their model of STEM education is an excellent model and it's working really, really well. But they would be the first people to tell you it's not the only model. There are many ways to do it. What I, what I think they're doing is excellent, but I think that there's not one way to teach uh, STEM and it's you could lead with the maths, you could lead with the science, you could start with the technology, you could um, embed the engineering initially for the challenges. There's so many ways to approach it that, again, as I said before, hooks in the heart and then the head follows. Okay. Well, I'm a big fan of VSEC and have been for a very long time. Is this model that they've got there of STEM education one that should be run all over Australia? My feeling is that perhaps it's not going to be enough to continue to rely on the individual enthusiasm of random teachers of science to inject some space science into their teaching programs. Well, again, that's another good question. I like it because we are relying on, in science education, individuals who are super enthusiastic to carry the weight in ways that is just not sustainable, nor is it actually truly effective in schools. We can't really always just rely on one person. Thanks, Christine. Now, Are there reforms you'd like to see in national testing or science curriculum that can build a greater science literacy in our population? 
to, so that this burgeoning space industry can be supported in the future? I like the idea of a science curriculum test because I think it puts curriculum back as having status. Yep. And I think it would provide an argument to support uh, teachers with resources to teach science and the time to teach science. Science is a rich area, but it's, it's very difficult to find its place in the curriculum. The teachers are willing. The students love it. Why it doesn't happen, lack of resources, uh, lack of professional support and development for teachers. It's not, it's, there's no simple answers, unfortunately. Okay, so we've got some work to do to provide a sort of bedrock to launch our new space agency. Thanks, Christine. Now, the mic is all yours, and you've got the opportunity now to give us your favourite rant or rave about the challenges that we face in science, in science denialism, in science literacy, science education, in equity, diversity, outreach, our quest for knowledge of space. The mic's all yours, Christine. Oh, okay. So some of the points I think that are my, what we call rants or raise, I've probably already, I've already raised, and that is that our primary teachers are ill-supported with professional learning on a regular basis and of an exceptional quality. I think science has some of its own issues. That is, science literacy is the ability to make informed decisions about the quality of your life for yourself and people that you live with or work with and to think about the consequences of your impact on the planet now is really critical and I think that's going to become an issue that has exponential growth in terms of the future of the planet. The other area that's been of interest is girls and science and girls and STEM and I think there's a lot of shift in activity and movement towards ensuring that girls have expectations of themselves that if they have an interest in science or maths or arts or humanities that they're supported to do what they are interested in and there's been a lot of support for encouraging everybody to follow their passions and where their heart wants to take them. On the point of science outreach, I'm very excited about citizen science. One of the most exciting for me has always been Chris Lintox. In, he started the Galaxy Zoo. Yep. classifying of galaxies, whether they were clockwise or anticlockwise, spiral, whatever they were doing. Citizen science, whether it's frog watch or checking salinity, whatever it is, I think that citizen science is a place where people can feel they make a difference, where they can contribute to big bodies of data. And I think that's fantastic and I'd love to see uh, more and more of that. For space science, Australia is just so well-placed. We look straight into the Milky Way. We have some of the best views on the planet um, because we're in the Southern Hemisphere. We have a long history of space science in this country, whether we go back to Woomera, and now we are sitting at the edge of the nanotechnology and putting up the CubeSat. Fantastic, Christine. Well, 
things are looking good if we've got these programs happening to support both our teachers and students to help build a better world through science. Thank you so much, Dr. Christine Redman. On behalf of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you, Brendan. Appreciate the opportunity. Bye for now. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be talking with you again, Ian. And it's a pleasure to be on yet again and uh, to share the sky with everybody. Okay. Well, tell us, what's up, Doc? What's up in the skies over the next two weeks? Well, in the evening sky, it's mostly down, really. In terms of bright planets, the only one we have is lonely Mars, which is now sinking towards the horizon. Mars is visited by the crescent moon on the 11th, which will make for a nice little photo opportunity. And we were discussing using this time as a way of measuring the uh, moon uh, with parallax. So that, that will be a very nice uh, time to do some astrophotography there. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that will be quite good. But Mars will be a little bit far away, so it won't necessarily make it into uh, it, to any narrow field uh, imaging, but it, might, it should get, if you're using a, a very wide field uh, astronomical lens or if you're using uh, a camera with a decent zoom on it, you'll be able to get the Moon and Mars into the same field of view quite nicely. Yep. Mars is going to be doing something relatively interesting over the next few weeks. It's moving through Aries, the uh, the sheep, and heading towards Taurus, the bull. And in the process of doing this, it's heading towards the beautiful star cluster, the Pleiades. Now, by the end of our two-week term here, it won't have uh, got within binocular distance of the Pleiades, but still in the uh, looking in the, uh, in the early evening, we'll be able to see by the uh, end of this fortnight, Mars very close to the Pleiades, about a hand span or so away, looking very nice indeed. And of course, in the next fortnight, where towards the end of March, we'll see Mars skim above the Pleiades within a binocular distance away, which will make for some very nice viewing and astrophotography. You should get some nice astronomical images of Mars approaching Taurus and the Pleiades, which will look very pleasant indeed. Again, Mars is quite low to the horizon, so you really have to be jumping on it as soon as it becomes fully dark. That's an hour and a half after sunset, yep. and you will need a relatively clear western horizon in order to get to the best images, although you might find the sight of Mars and the Pleiades uh, poking themselves through the trees to make an interesting composition. Wow, yeah. yeah. Even though we haven't got lots of exciting things happening, we have lots of things which are quite beautiful. Now, also towards the end of our fortnight period, Jupiter will start poking up the horizon, rising a little bit before midnight, depending on where you are, but it won't really get high enough to do any observation beyond that, pointing at the, look, see that bright object just above the horizon? If you don't have any trees in the way, that's Jupiter. Yep. However, let's rotate to the morning now. Jupiter is very high in the morning. In fact, just before astronomical twilight, it's at its highest above the northern horizon and is perfectly positioned for astrophotography. Its moons were putting on some interesting 
events over the next few weeks. So keep a weather eye out for some nice transits of the moons across Jupiter's face and some nice eclipses of the moons. So this will, that will be all very nice to watch. But again, you have to get up early in the morning in order to do these observations uh, when uh, Jupiter is at its highest in the dark skies. And there were some very nice Juno cam pictures released today of the atmosphere, and they are amazing. I haven't seen today's release. I saw the release a couple of days ago where you're getting these amazing swirls in the atmosphere, which is really cool uh, until you realise that to get swirls like that, you need to have large amounts of methane and ammonia in your atmosphere. I think I can live without methane and ammonia clouds personally. <laughs> but you, you have to say that absolutely stunning. Of course, one of the unexpected bonuses of the Juno mission is apart from all these fantastic cloud images and structures we didn't uh, really imagine were there before, is the images they're getting of the moon Io and being able to pick up the active volcanoes on Io with its infrared detector. So we're getting more information on Io's volcanoes than we had imagined we would from the original mission. So Juno is a mission that keeps on giving in so many ways. And another great thing that NASA is doing is they're releasing all the raw data now. And so astrophotographers and processors all around the planet are grabbing that data and using their favourite software and they're processing it and they're publishing absolutely amazing images. Yeah, you're getting the raw images almost real time, and this has made an amazing citizen science event. Indeed, yep. So that's Jupiter. Track east from Jupiter. Yep. Below the teapot of Sagittarius, you'll see bright Saturn. Saturn's nothing's exciting is going to happen in this two weeks. At the end of the month, we're going to see. Saturn and the crescent moon get very close, and that will be another nice thing to watch. But Saturn by itself is is very good, and of course Saturn's getting higher and higher. So if you're out and about at astronomical twilight, just before astronomical twilight, imaging Jupiter, take this opportunity to swing your scope to Saturn, and you'll see its beautiful rings. Here in Australia, we've been having, as you know really horrible weather. It's either been uh, pelting down with cyclones or boiling hot from heat waves. The, the atmosphere is just not still at all, and it's been a very disappointing time for aspect photography. But even so, Saturn is sufficiently high above the horizon. You should get some decent views of Saturn if you're prepared to uh, wait out the boiling of the atmosphere. Yep. Below Saturn is Venus. Venus put on a very spectacular show this morning when it was very close to the thin crescent moon. In fact, it was close enough that you potentially could put both of them into the same telescope field if the clouds hadn't come over. Oh, no. In the time, I got up, got, got some shots of, of, <laughs> of Venus and Saturn together, then went to get my telescope, came back, clouded out completely. Uh, it, was, uh, it was also a good time to look for Saturn during the daytime if you could have seen it through the clouds. So, yeah, another astrophotography adventure foiled by the sky stuff. These things happen. I've never heard of that happening before, Ian. <laughs> yeah, how could that possibly happen? <laughs> A great astronomical event that's spoiled by clouds. Never happens. <laughs> yeah, right. 
So Venus is looking very nice, really easy to see. In fact, it's so bright at the moment that if you're out somewhere dark in the country, away from the city lights, you're potentially able to see your shadow um, in, the, in the light of Venus. But if you get up, get up before astronomical twilight, before 90 minutes, uh, you should be able to, to potentially see, if, you're, if you allow your eyes to become fully adjusted to the dark, you should be able to see shadows cast by Venus. I've wow. seen that once. It's pretty damn stunning. Wow. That would be awesome. I've heard that you can read a book by the light of the Milky Way if you happen to be on those plateaus in Chile. Oh, that would be something fantastic. For people with good visual acuity, then that would be a fantastic thing to experience. <laughs> Very good. Okay, what else have you got up there, Ian? Uh, well, Mercury uh, appears in the morning sky towards the end of this session, but it's going to be very low. So we have to wait for the next fortnight to start seeing uh, Mercury at its best. That This is in the southern hemisphere. In the northern hemisphere, I'm sorry, this apparition of Mercury is going to be pretty rubbish for you in the mornings, but from the southern hemisphere, this apparition of Mercury is going to be really good. Fantastic, Ian. Now, there is one more thing, and this is for the Northern Hemisphere people. Remember Iwatomo? Oh, yes. Yep. So Iwatomo has passed its maximum brightness, but it's still um, you know, uh, on, on the edge of binocular brightness. Now, in Australia, we can't see it anymore. It's below our horizon and will not return. Um, but if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, it's beautifully located. It's visible in the uh, early evening after astronomical twilight, quite high in the sky. And it's currently in the constellation of Arugia, the charioteer. And it's currently uh, very close to the relatively bright star Iota, uh, or Unlike the past few weeks where it's been moving really rapidly and uh, tracking it from night to night required very close attention to charts, uh, it's now moving relatively slowly so once you, once you track it around uh, Iota, that'll be good for you to find, for finding it for the next few nights. Again, it, you need a good dark sky to pick it up in binoculars at the moment, but it's really high in the sky, good uh, observing opportunity, and uh, still, uh, still visible in small instruments. And it's still, look, it's still got that electric green colour? Um, uh, you only see the electric green colour if you've got a really good uh, astrophotography setup. You won't be able to see it with the unaided eye. It'll look sort of a greyish colour. Yep. But um, I haven't I, I haven't seen the latest images, so I don't know if the double spike of its tail's gone away yet. If you're in the northern hemisphere, look up at it. Very definitely so. Okay, Ian, do you have a tangent for us for this episode? Yes. Everyone will have known that uh, Hayabusa 2 has uh, successfully landed and, uh, and possibly picked up a sample from asteroid Rugu. This makes it the third asteroid landing, or should I say uh, asteroid touchdown. Yep. Anyone want to guess what the first asteroid touchdown was? Oh, I've got no idea. That was near Shoemaker touching down on asteroid Eros. The Mia Shoemaker probe was the first to do a detailed study of an asteroid, 
and then at the end of its mission, they gently lowered it down and landed it on uh, Eros, and the, the spacecraft is now called Shoemaker Station. Um, <laughs> and then 2005, the original Hayabusa arrived at Itakawa after a little bit of uh, drama, where solar flares uh, damaged its iron engines, so it, uh, it limped on to reach its target. So that mission was a rather ill starred. The original um, hopping robot was meant to land on Itakawa, uh, but instead missed and floated off into deep space. The Hayabusa probe touched down on the asteroid, and it was supposed to pick up some samples from the surface, but the mechanism to fire the projectile into the surface to kick up dust didn't work. It still got some dust, uh, some asteroid particles in it. It then started its voyage home, which involved exploding uh, fuel lines, uh, iron engines conking out, uh, limping back with great determination, so to speak, uh, and disintegrating an Earth's atmosphere um, before releasing its uh, cargo of precious fragments of asteroid. So, again, you've got this amazing story uh, of a, a robot that just didn't give up. But now Hayabusa 2 has successfully landed. The big issue with Hayabusa 2 was a surprising one in that the idea was that they were going to fire a handful of bullet into the surface of the asteroid. It would pick up all this dust and they'd take dust away and go home and everything would be hunky-dory. It turns out that the surface of Ruru is mostly pebbles. It looks like a beach. It's basically like gravel which is not so good when you planned your commission around collecting fine dust. I did some experiments back on Earth and decided that they could get enough material from firing the tantalum bullet into the surface. So they touched down, fired their bullet, hopefully collected some samples, and then retreated. Now, you may ask, why did they use a tantalum bullet? because tantalum is not something you find on asteroids. And so if they, any, um, when they do their mass spectroscopy and elemental analysis, they can clearly distinguish between the, um, the, the bullet and native uh, asteroidal material. So there's a limited number of things you can use to blast um, material off an asteroid uh, without contaminating. So if you were to use a copper bullet, for example, there's copper in asteroids. And so you mess up the the, uh, the ratios of elements. That is so cool. But one thing that they don't know is how much sample do, did they get? Because with Pyrobusa 2, the sample is stored deep inside the spacecraft for safety. Fast forward to OSIRIS-REx. OSIRIS-REx will be landing on uh, asteroid Bennu uh, in uh, 2020. It will also have to be a sample return mission. Uh, but they've got an entirely different approach to uh, to the sample return. They're going to blast material into the uh, sample container, and then when they lift off, because the sample return container is at the end of a long arm, they're going to spin the spacecraft, and by calculating how much the spacecraft wobbles, they can measure how much material has gone into the sample container so they can precisely measure how much is, is in there. Unbelievable. Yeah. Pyrobus 2 has used a tantalum bullet to blast things away. Osiris Rex is going to use nitrogen gas 
to blow material into the sample container. Now, um, with Hayabusa 2, is it going to crash land in Australia's outback again, like Hayabusa 1, or will they work it, out the landing site a bit closer to the end of mission? No, they've already sorted out the landing site, and the landing site is in Australia again. But they're going to do it deliberately this time. <laughs> At the moment, the plan is to uh, land uh, the uh, sample capsule in Australia, and hopefully the parachutes and everything work this time instead of, instead of it coming in at a uh, supersonic impact speed. But uh, we'll, see, we'll see what happens. Very good. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. It's been fantastic. It has indeed, and I hope everyone gets out and has a look at our wonderful skies, and, and it's going to be quite dark over the next couple of weeks, so even though there might be lots of, uh, aren't going to be lots of bright planets about, there's still lots of nice constellations to observe, so you know, go out, have a look, even if you're in the suburbs. The stars are still bright enough to see, so get out, look up, and know out there somewhere there's lots of robots doing interesting things. Excellent. Thanks, Ian. No worries. So here is the Astrophys News. First up from a paper dated 27th of February 2019, published online in Archive. In previous episodes, I have pronounced A-R-X-I-V phonetically, as in Rxiv, so more fill me. Archive is an open access journal published by Cornell University and is a go-to repository of the very latest discoveries in astrophysics and other science disciplines. The papers are moderated, but not fully peer-reviewed. We probably should do an episode on scientific publishing sometime, because it's really interesting how there's now a pushback on predatory journal publishing. Boycotts, universities cancelling, Elsevier subscriptions, and huge criticism of other publishing houses like Elsevier who do not pay peer reviewers, yet charge high prices for access to journal articles written by scientists fully funded by government grants. But that's for another episode. Meanwhile, back to this new paper by Aaron Perlman, Walid Majid and Thomas Prince. It was submitted last week and accepted for publication in Advances in Astronomy. This was an invited paper for a special issue on magnetars in Advances in Astronomy journal. The title is Observations of Radio Magnetars with the Deep Space Network. The Deep Space Network, DSN, is a worldwide array of radio telescopes that supports NASA's interplanetary spacecraft missions and others. When the DSN antennas are not communicating with spacecraft, they provide a valuable resource for performing observations of radio magnetars, searches for new pulsars at the galactic center, and additional pulsar-related studies. In this paper, we describe the DSN's capabilities for carrying out these types of observations. We also present results from observations of three radio magnetars and the transitional magnetar candidate, PSR J1119-6127, using the DSN radio telescopes near Canberra in Australia. Now, we've done previous episodes on pulsars, magnetars, and the Tidbinbilla DSN station. Those episodes are for pulsars. You could listen in to episodes 64 and 65. For magnetars, 
Dr. Matthew Bale explains it all in episode 56. And if you want to hear from the operations supervisor, Richard Stevenson at Tidbinbilla, go and have a listen to episode 38, Talking with Spacecraft. Of course, the big news this week was another successful launch for SpaceX. Elon Musk's SpaceX company under contract to NASA had a successful test when it docked with the International Space Station this week. This is the first time an American-made spacecraft capable of carrying a crew has docked. So what happened? The Dragon capsule closed in on the ISS about 260 miles above the Pacific Ocean and flying autonomously, linked up on its own without the help of the robotic arm normally used to guide spacecraft in position and had a successful docking. So it looks like there could be a couple of NASA astronauts going up in the middle of a year to the International Space Station on SpaceX. Fantastic. Now, what happened in 2011, the Space Shuttle program was discontinued. And since then, Russian Soyuz spacecraft have been delivering the crew up to the International Space Station. So it looks like SpaceX and Boeing will be building and operating the next generation of crewed spacecraft. The capsule was eight metres long. It went into orbit on Saturday and it launched from NASA's Kennedy Space Centre and a mannequin was strapped into one of its four seats, fully wired in, so that they could test all the parameters of keeping astronauts alive. And it looks like it was a very successful launch. And the test dummy, by the way, was nicknamed Ripley. And we don't know if there were any stowaways on board as well, but it's good to know that Ripley was in the command chair. Next up, we travel 10 years back in time. You may have missed it. I only came across this because I follow Northolt Branch Observatories with Guy Wells and Daniel Bamberger. And the Northolt Branch Observatories are run by a group of amateur asteroid astronomers who measure and confirm the orbits of NEOs, near-Earth objects, and they also look at minor planets and transient objects. And the amazing thing about it is their telescopes are based almost within Greater London, and so they're dealing with huge light pollution, yet they get amazing results. Now, back in 2009, a team of astronomers used the SWIFT spacecraft to measure the luminosity output of a distant quasar named S50014 plus 81, and they measured the mass of the central black hole, and to their surprise, they found out that this black hole contained actually 40 billion solar masses. That is 10,000 times more massive than the black hole at the centre of our galaxy, Sergei. This makes it one of the most massive black holes ever discovered. More than six times the value of the black hole in Messier 87, which was thought to be the largest black hole for almost 60 years, and was coined to be an ultra-massive black hole. The radius of this black hole is 118 billion kilometres. So yeah, size matters. And in our next episode, we're speaking with PhD student Ryan Ridden, who flies ultraviolet telescopes above the ozone layer to observe cataclysmic events. It is fabulous.
We'll see you in two weeks. Lady down the way.